Muy buenos días, mi nombre es Miguel Vázquez y soy un plantador de iglesia con la Junta de Misiones de Norteamérica. Estoy trabajando con mi esposa Raquel en este campo de plantación de iglesia. NAM me ha apoyado en un entrenamiento intensivo durante seis meses, tanto en la teoría como en la práctica y continúa apoyándome económicamente para que el ministerio continúe adelante. Dios mediante podamos ver un ministerio en español que crezca en nuestra iglesia en inglés. Y esto es gracias a la ayuda y el aporte de NAM y de cada uno de ustedes. Como sabemos, la ofrenda de Pascua de Annie Armstrong está aproximándose. Cuando ustedes dan a esta ofrenda, son parte de expandir el reino de Dios a través de la plantación de iglesia y por medio de la proclamación del Evangelio. Muchas gracias y gracias por el tiempo. If you feel led to give to that, you can do that online or through the envelopes there, uh, maybe in the seat backs, and you can turn those in, just designated to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. We've got a church goal of 15,000, and that, those funds go directly uh, to support those who are part of the North American Mission Board uh, and people just like Miguel, one of our own, who's planning a church, and we're his sending church. And so I just encourage you to consider and pray about giving towards that and help that continue to advance that work. I had a, um, a former student of mine uh, one summer when I was a student pastor that opted to go to summer camp um, instead of a baseball practice that was scheduled the same week. He wanted to go to summer camp for a couple of reasons. One, uh, just in a personal level, he wanted to grow in his faith and understanding of who God is and God's word. And then he also wanted to bring some people with him that weren't believers, and he thought summer camp would serve as a great opportunity to... Uh, for them to be introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be saved. And so they, he invited them to come and they decided to come. Went through the week, camp was great. He experienced some personal growth himself spiritually in his walk with the Lord. He saw some of those friends that he invited uh, to come with him come to faith in Jesus. Camp ended that Friday. Saturday, he shows up to his baseball tournament and finds himself sitting on the bench. And he sat on the bench for the three or four or five games that they played during that weekend. When he got back, his, his mom had sent me a message and had texted me about what had happened. And when he got back, uh, I asked him, I said, man, how did, that, how did that make you feel? And he said, well, obviously I was discouraged. But he said, I actually found myself uh, finding joy that because I chose Jesus over practice, That, I, that there was, I was facing a little bit of opposition and said it actually put a fire inside of me to continue to be steadfast in my faith and to continue to make it known. What he didn't know is that as 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells, as Paul writes this to Timothy, that those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted or will, will face opposition. And while he experienced that opposition, I mean, his life wasn't in danger. He had to set out a few games because he went to church camp. The truth of the matter is, is he faced opposition for making the choice to pursue Jesus. What we see happening in Acts chapter four, which is a continuation of, of where we were at last week, Peter and John have been in the temple. They healed the lame man who had been crippled for 40 years. They preached that sermon. Peter preached that sermon. And now we're gonna see for the first time in the early church's life that there's opposition that, that has come. 
And so we're going to read in verses uh, 1 through 3 to begin with. We'll look at the rest of the text throughout the course of the sermon. So let's read it together, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. I believe this text shows us that because of Jesus, four things come, to play, come into play. The first is, is because of Jesus, opposition will come. This, as we know this, up until this point, when Pentecost happened, when Peter preached at Pentecost, when he preached here, gathered in this place, people were receiving and accepting of the message. Everybody was kind of enamored by what was happening and they were following what was taking place. Until we get to this point that there were some people at the temple that they weren't on the same page. And, it, and he, Luke lists who they are in, in, this, in this text. He says they're the priest, those that would have had daily responsibilities in the temple. They, they would have been practicing their everyday work every day. They're there and they're not pleased with what's happening. He mentions the captain of the temple. In our terms today, this would be the, the second in charge, like right under the high priest. This person would speak on behalf of the high priest. He would step in in appearances for the high priest. He had the ability to rule over all the temple area and could arrest people if there was violations of, temple, of the temple law. And then the Sadducees. The Sadducees, I'll summarize them this way. They didn't think that angels, demons, and the resurrection were real. They thought they were innovations or ideas created in people's mind. And so they obviously had a problem that Peter and John were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, but they also, the Sadducees could be described this way. They wanted to live at peace with Rome, wanted to maintain the status quo, and were concerned with themselves and making sure they didn't lose their position and power. And so that's who's there. So Peter and John are preaching about this name. It's the name we've sung about in our worship service this morning. It's the names in which you heard in confession of baptism. It's the name of Jesus, and they're concerned with it. And so what do they do? They arrest them. Now, why did they arrest them? Like, why didn't they go ahead and, like, pull them together and, like, have a conversation with them? Well, here's why. We know from the context of this story, it's the evening prayer time. So it's the end of the day. And the only way that they could address them and, and, and try them, per se, because of their actions is through the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is 70 plus people plus the high priest. That is, they meet people who violate temple laws and, and they'll meet with them and they'll, they'll work through the process and, and then decide some sort of judgment for them. Well, it's the end of the day, so they're, all, they're already gone home. Or, you know, they're already done for the day. So their only option to stop them from sharing any further was to arrest them and to put them into a so-called holding cell. I share that with us this morning to say this, that those who believe in Jesus, who faithfully follow him as Lord and Savior, it is inevitable that you will face opposition. Your life is going to have difficulty and people are going to be opposed to your message because of who you believe in and the message that you're proclaiming. It's offensive to people. And so opposition is going to come. This is no surprise. Jesus himself experienced it. He told the disciples in John 15, 18 through 20, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
But because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. What is true for Jesus is true for those who believe in Jesus and follow him. If we, in our lives personally, if we cannot find any hint or form of opposition for being a follower of Jesus, then it's possible that our faith is either quiet, weak, and we're simply seeking to evade opposition and persecution. I mean, I've heard people say, I don't, I don't want to suffer for Jesus. But all we can see from scripture is that if you're going to follow Jesus, then suffering and opposition is going to be a part of it. Now, you're not to be reckless in, in, in seeking out persecution. And what I mean by this, I'll give this a simple example. It's like somebody who says, it's not a real life story. I mean, maybe it is, but I don't know anybody it's personally happened to. But it would be like this. Somebody walks into a, a store Walk up to somebody randomly. They have no connection with them. They have no relationship. They don't even know their name. They don't know where they came from. They walk up to them and say, hey, yo, if you don't believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, you're gonna go to hell when you die. And they say something like this back. I'm being persecuted for my faith because like, they like slapped me in the face and told me to shut up. Now we would look at that situation and we would say to ourselves, well, duh, who walks up to somebody with no relationship and says something that brash and that harsh, right? That, there's a little bit of carelessness and recklessness that comes with that. Now, we're not to be careless and reckless in our witness in which we receive opposition that way. But we are to do this. Am I bold enough in my faith in Jesus? Am I bold enough in my faith in Jesus to proclaim it when he opens doors even if there might be persecution on the other side of it. Even if I might run into opposition because faithful living will result in opposition. Because of Jesus and who he is and the work that he's done in us, opposition will come. There's also blessing. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So faithful living, there's going to be opposition when you, because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, there's also blessing when you live out your life faithfully. Tim Keller described kind of this situation this way. He said, insensitive, harsh Christians will have persecution, but not praise. Cowardly Christians will have praise, but not persecution. Most Christians whose walk with God is weak actually get neither. But Christians who are closest to Jesus will get both as he did. Because of Jesus, we will face opposition. And listen, every time that the church faces opposition and it's squeezed, it's always thrived. And we see that even in verse four when it says, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. And here's what we can take from this. These guys watched Peter and John who were speaking and proclaiming in the name of Jesus. They watched them be arrested and taken away. Yet there were still people there who heard the word and believed. And in this number, 
5,000. This is what happens when the church is squeezed, when opposition comes up, because there's something to be said that says, I have convictions in who I, who I believe in and what I believe, and I'm going to proclaim them even if opposition is coming after me. And listen, the gospel will continue to prevail. Number two, because of Jesus' courage was given. Let's keep reading in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Let me just say this to you. Luke gives detailed instruction of who's there. The people that make up the Sanhedrin are rulers. Elders are lay people from the Jewish society that were probably heavily influenced by the Sadducees. Scribes are those students of the law who are learning how to interpret scripture. They would have been used... Uh, when something would have come up, they would have re referenced them to make sure that they were following uh, the scriptures according to plan. And so these scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and he mentions Annas, the high priest. Annas wasn't the, the sitting high priest, but he had been the high priest. He was likely the most, the most powerful political figure in the time because he had served as a high priest and he had basically made sure that all the other high priests that would follow were from his family. Caiaphas was the sitting high priest. We know that from the story of Jesus and the trial of Jesus. And then John and Alexander, we know this come from his family. It's said that Annas had like four sons, one grandson and one son-in-law that were all high priests. Okay, he was just a very powerful, influential guy. These people are gathered together much like it would be like a semicircle like this, where they could kind of see each other. And they'll put Peter and John, who are testifying and bearing witness to Christ, they're going to put them right in their midst, as we'll see here in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. Now notice it says they inquired. Now, traditionally in that time, the high priest would have been the one who was overseeing it. So he would have been the one that asked the question. But the emphasis here on they inquired is, is that every one of them was wondering this question that they're about to ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? By what power or by what name did you do this? And then you see because of Jesus where courage comes into play. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man standing before you, by him this man is standing before you well. So they asked this question, by what power and what name do you do this? And here's what this question revealed about them. It revealed about their ignorance. People that were anticipating the coming of the Messiah, they would have been studied in the scriptures waiting for the Messiah. This question reveals their ignorance that they had missed Jesus as the Messiah. It revealed their arrogance that their decisions, even regarding Jesus and trying to cut out his message, that they didn't think that they had done anything wrong. But it also reveals fear. They were threatened by this powerful name. Now remember, a name in their context spoke to somebody's power and authority. This is almost like a layup in gospel presentation, right? I mean, just think about this. Most of the time when we're talking to somebody and we're sharing the gospel with them and trying to tell them about Jesus, we might have a hard time turning a conversation a certain way to get it back to Jesus or to get it to Jesus. These guys literally ask the question, by what name are you doing this? And Peter's like, okay. So he preaches a mini sermon, starting in verse 9. 
And it goes through the end of verse 12 and, and it, it patterns itself after the sermon he preached in chapter three that we looked at last week. It's just shorter. But I want to point out something about this sermon in verse nine, at the end of verse nine, or depending on how your text reads in the translation, it says, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? That word that's translated healed is also used in verse 12, which we haven't read yet, but we will now. And it's this, and, this is, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter uses a word that's, that has a broad meaning. And he uses the lame man's physical healing to say this is what Jesus can do. And he also says that there's a spiritual healing that takes place through the power of Jesus Christ. That he brings salvation to man. And it's only through him that can be saved. And so he points out this. That listen, this sal physical salvation of this lame man points us to a greater salvation that's found in Jesus. And Peter's preaching, not just to the Sanhedrin, but to all the people that might be able to hear. And it's the Sanhedrin, these groups of religious believers who are rejecting the name that could give them salvation. Peter revealed to them that this, when he boldly proclaimed that you were the ones who crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. It's a full circle moment for Peter in this courageous, this courage. And here's what I mean by that. Just a hundred or so days before, Peter was cowering at the question of a child. Do you belong to Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Didn't I see you associated with him? No, I do not. And in this moment, standing before the same people that tried and arrested and tried and convicted and crucified his Savior, he now doesn't bow in courage. He doesn't run. He doesn't deny. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, he stands up with courage and says to them, this is who Jesus is, the one that you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, under which there is no other name that somebody can have salvation than other than Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder to you and I that God can use anyone in our faith, that if we submit to his lordship, he's our Lord and Savior, and we follow him and listen to him and follow his lead when he opens doors of opportunities, that we have an opportunity through the spirit living inside of us to be courageous in our witness. And why do we need to be courageous? Because Jesus is alive. We need to be courageous because we love people and we want them to know this Jesus. We need to be courageous because the gospel message that we proclaim is exclusive. And what I mean by that is that there's only one way to heaven and that's through Jesus. And we also need to be courageous even to the point of death. Why? Because Jesus is alive. The Sanhedrin's plan didn't work. And as Peter tells them that, he's telling this, that Jesus is alive and he's alive through me and the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. And I'm proclaiming this message to you today, which is this, because of Jesus, salvation is possible. Reading in verse 11, it says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118.22. That psalm, that verse quickly became a messianic psalm in which the psalmist was highlighting how God's servant would be rejected by the establishment. And when he was rejected by the establishment, what would happen is, is that God through his divine power would raise him up to an elevated position. And then that, he would become the stone on which the temple would be built. 
What Peter is saying here is Jesus was rejected by the establishment. You, the Sanhedrin, the builders of God's people, he was rejected by you, and he is he has now become the cornerstone of this spiritual temple, this new spiritual temple that's being built inside of each of us. This verse, the use of this verse established their guilt. They were the builders of God's people who rejected the very rock on which God's people were built. Peter was speaking to God's sovereignty and providence in life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And Peter shows the Sanhedrin that their plan wasn't working. And then he goes on to say this in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In essence, what Peter was saying to them is, it's Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or an eternity separated from God in hell. Now, the exclusivity of the gospel is the hardest part of the gospel. It's hard because of this. People often consider it to be narrow-minded, almost hateful that you would say that there's only one way to heaven. And church, the early church took the exclusivity of the gospel very seriously, and you see that happening here, that in this moment, standing in front of these people, Peter clearly says, you're only getting to heaven through a relationship with Jesus. To say that there is any other way to God besides Jesus proves unloving because it's not true. John 14, 6, Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is a belief in our culture today that says it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you're sincere in your belief, you, you can make it to heaven. It's the sincerity of belief that saves you. Listen, this goes against every fabric of scripture. There is only one way to, G to, to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Our sincerity of faith doesn't save us. The object of our faith saves us, and that object is only Jesus. Now, some people might say, well, you know, I, I, I follow a, a different religion or I, or I, or I worship a, an idol or, or I don't actually believe that there's a God. Well, if you don't believe that there's a God, then you believe in something else, but you believe in something. Or I'm just a good person who believes that you gotta do these certain things in order to get to heaven. Listen, I don't care how sincere you are in those things. This text tells us, Peter's sermon and all of scripture points to the fact of this, that the gospel message is exclusive. It's offensive because it says that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And implying that there is any other way or other works are necessary is disrespectful to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Listen, it diminishes his work and his glory Scripture teaches in 1 Timothy 2.15 that there's one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus. That there's one door in John 10.9. And we know this, that if we believe in Jesus, Jesus is willing and ready to receive anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in him as Jesus Christ. We've experienced that if we're believers. And if you're in the room and you're not a believer and you reject Jesus for whatever reason... Today you can know this, that Jesus is ready to receive you, but the only way that you get into heaven is through a relationship with him. We have to decide for ourselves, do we, will we believe in Jesus alone for salvation? Just like the Sanhedrin had to do, would they continue to reject the one 
whom God placed as the final stone for his people. And we have to ask that ourselves. Notice what else happens because of Jesus that salvation is possible. It says in verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You have a man who was crippled for more than 40 years is standing in front of them fully healed. Two men and Peter and John who were uneducated that, that would mean that they were illiterate, that they didn't have the training that, that these religious leaders would have had in front of them, that they, were, that, they were, that they didn't have the interpretation skills of the interpretation of Scripture. So they see these people standing in front of them, and they're astonished by what they see, and they can only attribute it to this, and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. This is what Jesus does. He transforms lives. He brings joy. He brings peace. He takes somebody who was dead in their trespasses and sins, somebody who, who was only concerned about themselves and their own power and prestige and positions and authorities and was seeking all the things of themselves. And at some point, those people died of themselves and they trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they become a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus does. He transforms lives. This is why we celebrate it. This is why we sing the songs that we sing and why we worship and why we gather together is because Jesus is in the business of transforming lives. Peter and John's life was transformed because they had been with Jesus. Now, what does this mean for you and I? Well, it means this. One, if, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins and never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you don't look any different than the world because you're very much in the world. And in order to become transformed, you have to place your faith and trust in Jesus. But for us in the room that have made that decision, we've declared Jesus as Lord, we've been baptized, we've been coming to church, then I think this is what it means for us. In your personal walk with the Lord, you cannot rely on past prayers for filling of the Holy Spirit. You have to have a daily empowerment. We've got to be in the business of asking God every day, fill me with your spirit so I can live in faithful obedience to you. You cannot rely on yesterday's Bible reading. You need it today. You cannot rely on sporadic time with the church, with, with the church and with other believers. That the saying goes that you become like the people you spend time with, right? So we've got to make that a priority in our life to be connected to other believers who will help us and encourage us in our faith. And then we cannot get by with minimal focused prayer time. When we spend time in focused prayer between us and the Father, because of Jesus Christ in our life, we become the fragrance of Jesus. You ever had, a, um, ever had clothes get stuck in an enclosed space with, with something that smelled, whether good or bad? I know that some of you probably have a little perfume or cologne fragrance that's in your drawers. So when you pull out your clothes, you smell them and you smell nice. I know that other people, you woke up this morning and put on something and smelled it to see if it smelled clean. This is what happened with Peter and John. They were so close to Jesus that they gave his aroma. They had been with Jesus. To the watching world around you, church, when somebody interacts with you today, maybe at lunch after, after the service is over, maybe this evening at some activity, 
Will they be able to tell, not that you went to church today, will they be able to tell that you've been with Jesus today? Will they be able to see it? Will they be able to hear it? Will they be able to smell it? The Sanhedrin, considering this information, they saw this healed lame man, these two ordinary men. Their response was this in verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. Church, this is what Jesus does. Those who believe in him are able to speak with courage and freedom, and those who are opposed to him often sit in silence and just say, wow. This is the power he gives us through Jesus Christ. No one can argue with the power of Jesus Christ in the life of a believer. One of your greatest testimonies, hear me, church, One of your greatest testimonies is the difference others see in your life since you've trusted in Jesus. Nobody can argue with it. So what are the changes that Jesus has made in your life? And listen, if there's no changes that Jesus has made in your life, then maybe today is your day for salvation. That today you will trust in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and you'll experience the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And number four, because of Jesus, the gospel will not be stopped. We already saw this in verse four, that despite opposition, because of Jesus, there were those who heard the word and believed. But we also see in the end of the text through 15 through 22, some other important things. It says, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, that was normal. They sent them out. They talked with each other and they said this, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Can I just say this? Even in the midst of all that's happening, thousands of people coming to believe in Jesus, a man who's been crippled for 40 years is is standing in front of them. They were still blinded by what was transpiring. They were missing what Jesus was offering them. Instead, they're only concerned with themselves. Their hard-heartedness gets them to a place that says, how do we stop these dudes and how do we keep them quiet? And we see from the text here in verse 17, but in order that it may not spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them, and we'll focus here on the first half of this answer, Whatever is right in the sight of God, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. They put the question back on themselves. And I think this question is also a question that we have to ask. Maybe we've been in the habit of rejecting Jesus and his work in our life because we're focused upon us, ourselves. What the Sanhedrin should have asked is, what must I do to be saved? But what they were really asking is this, how do I keep my power and position and keep everything the way it's supposed to go? And we've got to come to the hard reality of this, that we have to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And then once we answer that question, then we move into this next phase. It says, do I listen to what these authorities are telling me to do or do I obey God? And in this case, as we see from Peter and John, Their response was both bold and borderline defiant when they said, whatever is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. He put the question back upon them because what he was in essence communicating is this. They knew that they were supposed to obey those in authority over them unless that authority commanded that they do something that God forbids 
or forbids us from doing something that God commands. If any authority under heaven comes to the Christian and tells him not to pray, to teach, to preach, to worship, to tithe, or any other thing God commands, then the Christian must obey. But this is not a license to disobey somebody that I don't like who's in authority over me. What Peter and John are telling us is this, that listen, there's going to be opposition in your life. And if they tell you to do things that God forbids, or they forbid you from doing things that God commands, then you must obey. And that's exactly what they did. And then I love what they said next. For we cannot, in verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Hmm. The the New American Standard translates it that we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Peter and John had no other choice but to defy the court's orders because they saw that the message of the gospel and the message of salvation was a message that needed to be proclaimed. And we should too, church. And so the Sanhedrin was left with no choice, as we see. And when they had had further threatened them, they tried to tell them one more time, don't you say anything. And then they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And if you take 22 and connect it back to verse 26, for that, or not 26, verse 16, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's this. This sign points to what the man's healing was. It was a sign that attracted people to hear the gospel message that led to people placing their faith and trust in Jesus. It was a sign to the Sanhedrin that only in the name of Jesus can you be saved. And it's a sign for you and I that Jesus has made it possible through him for us to have a right relationship with God. And these uneducated, untrained men prevailed because they followed the plan of God. They preached the gospel boldly because of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit inside of them. And listen, the gospel could not be stopped because God cannot be stopped. This is why we proclaim the message. And God wants to use you and me to proclaim that message. And I'll conclude with this. Whenever we seek to impact our world by the preaching and proclamation of the gospel, both with courage and power as we declare it, when our church is growing and and things are happening, people are being saved, lives are being transformed, then we need to expect opposition. And when that opposition comes, we need to be ready to stand firm. But I also want to say this about the Sanhedrin, because I believe there are people in this room that this applies to. The Sanhedrin was blind, deaf to salvation. Even the miracle couldn't awaken them to that. They craved their own interest. They wanted to preserve their place in Jewish society. And ultimately, they lost both of those things when, when it was all over with. You may be here today, and you may be blind to Jesus, and you've been opposed to him for whatever reason. Know this, I have to say this, you will ultimately lose, because the only way you win is by surrendering to Jesus. Let's pray together.